Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, in all the earth, your name is excellent. You are glorious. And you deserve our worship, our praise. And Lord, we want to be those who respond to you as your creation should. And Father, you know what we need. You know that more than anything else, we need to, with unveiled face, behold your glory, the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we need to, to experience the transformation that results from this, from one degree of glory to another. So Lord, we pray that through your word this morning, you would give the command and that light would shine out of darkness. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We ask this in his name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Exodus chapter 15. And as you turn there, I would observe that Exodus 15 is the very first psalm of praise that we meet in the scriptures. Uh, in terms of when it was written, in terms of where it's placed, in terms of its position in the canon, this is the Bible's first psalm of praise. And my prayer for us, as I just articulated, is that in this psalm, we would see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. So my prayer is that this psalm of praise would cause all of us who behold God's glory in it to be made more Christ-like through it. Because what we have here is instructional worship that looks back in order to look forward. Let me just take that, that statement apart piece by piece. This is instructional, meaning Moses intends as he, as he composes this psalm of praise and as he positions it where he does, he intends to teach us, to teach us how to respond to the creator God who is also the redeeming father. So this is instructional and it is worship. Moses is not only teaching us how to respond to God, he's teaching us how to worship God. And so he leads by example as he, as he leads the people of Israel in the praise of God. So this is instructional worship that looks back at the start of this, this psalm of praise. Moses is going to look back at what happened to the army of Pharaoh. And he is going to marvel with glorious poetry at the power of God on display in the destruction of the greatest military force of the day. He's going to look back to that, and then he's going to look forward. And it's almost as though what Moses does is he says, look, if God did this to Pharaoh and Egypt, well, the inhabitants of Canaan, they're not as great as Pharaoh. What's going to happen to them? Naturally. What's going to happen to them? They're going to be terrified when they hear the news. And it's as though the exodus 
has already become a kind of predictive paradigm for what's going to take place when the people come to the land of Canaan. So uh, in this psalm of praise, we have instructional worship that looks back in order to look forward. Now, I want to say a word about the way that this psalm of praise is structured. In other words, I'm going to talk about its literary structure, its architecture, for just a second. And uh, what, I, what I'm about to say, I'm just going to use a lot of words that seek to avoid saying the word chiasm over and over. <laughs> so we could call this a, steps, a stair step up to the top of a pyramid and then back down the other side. We could say that it's a mirrored composition. We could say that it's paneled. These would all be different ways of saying, we could say that it's pedimental. That's another way of re referring to stair steps. Uh, but what we're going to see is in the first two verses, look at, look at verse 2, where we have the phrase, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And then we're going to stop today at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Miriam sang to them. And then here, almost the exact same statement, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And then the same line follows that we saw back in, I'm sorry, that was back in verse 1. I said verse 2, but it's verse 1. And then in verses 3 and 4, you have a statement about the Lord and then a statement about how Pharaoh is thrown into the sea. And that's going to ma be matched by verses 18 and 19, where you have a statement about the Lord. And then in verse 19, a statement about Pharaoh being thrown into the sea. And then in verses 5 through 10, you have um, essentially the destruction of the army of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And then in verses uh, 13 through 17, you have a look forward to what's going to happen to the inhabitants of Canaan. They're going to be destroyed just like Pharaoh was. And at the center of this thing, and this is, this is one of the things that these, these uh, pyramidal or pedimental or paneled structures do, they highlight what's in the very center. And at the very center of this glorious poem in verses 11 and 12, Moses teaches the people to respond to the Lord with the words, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. So right there at the center of this in verses 11 and 12, you, you have this kind of uh, worshipful response that also anticipates the future, doesn't it? Because this is exactly what's going to happen to Korah and those who joined him in his rebellion. The earth is going to open up its mouth and swallow them alive. And in a sense, this is what's happened to the army of Pharaoh as the waters of the Red, of the Red Sea have closed over them. So let's work through this. Um, uh, and, and we're going to start with the beginning and the end. So uh, Exodus 15, in verses 1 and 2, um, it's as though Moses says... I am going to give to the people of Israel a fund of language that will enable them, allow them to respond to their God in worship. And the reason I, I put it that way is because so many of the terms that, that, that occur right here in Exodus 15, 1 and 2 are terms that will mark the Psalter. These words are going to occur in the Psalms over and over again. And uh, the Psalms are like Exodus 15. The Psalms are responding to what God has done for his people in the past, 
looking forward to what God will do for them in the future. And this is the way that our worship songs function also. This is the way the Lord's Supper functions for us. As we were singing How Great Thou Art this morning, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't, it starts in verse 1 with a, a verse about creation. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. And then in verse 3, I don't know how, I can't remember how it's enumerated in the way we sang it, but in the hymnal, verse 3, it moves to redemption. And when I think that God, his son, not sparing. So creation, redemption, and then it looks to the future in verse 4, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. And this psalm, is, this psalm in Exodus 15 is going to do the same thing. It's going to look back at the Red Sea with overtones of creation, and then it's going to look forward to future redemption. So in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They sang it to Yahweh. And, and perhaps you, you can think of uh, psalms that in their superscriptions, like Psalm 67, refer to themselves as a song. And, and it's telling us this is something that you are to put to music and you are to vocalize in a way that's a little bit more elaborate, a little bit more structured and rhythmic than normal spoken language would be. You are to employ art as you respond to the Lord. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, and then it says, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. He's done, he's done something that causes him to be recognized as exceedingly exalted. He has shown himself to be over all. What did he do? At the end of verse 2, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. One commentator that I read talked about the army of Pharaoh. And he had an excursus on, an excursus on the elan, which is a word that means something like the dashing courage, of the, the chariotry and the horses of Egypt. Their power was, it was almost like an ancient version of the Blitzkrieg. They would come roaring into battle with this, with this abandonment of, of any concern for their own safety. And as they came powering in on these chariots pulled by horses, they would overwhelm their enemies. And you think about what we read last week about how the Lord, he... he cause this strong wind to blow and the, wa the water becomes walls of water with dry ground, imagine one of these chariot drivers looking at this and thinking to himself, I'm going in. We are going after those people. And it is a dashing and courageous move. And the Lord threw them into the sea. The most powerful military force of the day, the horse and his rider, he has thrown into the sea. That, that, those chariots, had the Lord not caused the waters to close, they would certainly have overwhelmed the people of Israel. The people of Israel had no defense against the army of Pharaoh. There was no hope for them to defeat Pharaoh and his hosts. And so, verse 2, Yahweh is my strength. The people are saying what we should say. Yahweh is my strength. 
This is not about us. This is not about our ability, the, the people of Israel could say. This was not about our strategy. We didn't plan this. The Lord was their strength. And then it goes on to say, the Lord is my strength and my song. And this actually is a different Hebrew term than the one that we've seen to this point. The one that we've seen to this point is this term, sheer, which can be both a noun and a verb. If you, if you uh, have a sheer, you have a song. If you sing a, if you, if you do sheer, you're, you're singing. This is a word that's actually related to the, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew root from which we get the, the term psalm. It's this, it's this term zamar uh, that, that in its noun for, form, it's mizmor, which is a psalm. So you could almost say, um, Yahweh is my strength and my psalm. He is my song. Now, why would they say that? Why would they say he is their song? Well, he's the content of what they sing. He is what they sing about. And what you sing about is what you love. And, and, you know, last week I made a comment about secular music. I don't, I'm not some kind of fundamentalist who thinks that uh, all secular music is bad. But what you sing about is what you love. And, and uh, we need to guard our hearts. And we need to be sure that we're not swept away by the currents of the culture. And there is a lot of sewage and a lot of filth out there that we should avoid altogether. Because we will become what we worship. You become what you worship. If you celebrate... Sexual immorality, you will become an idolater. If you celebrate the Lord, you will become more Christ-like. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. They're simply saying, the Lord saved us. The Lord saved us. And you know, anyone who has been saved can say, he delivered me. I did not save myself. This was his power at work on my behalf. He is the Savior. This is my God. He goes on in verse 2, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. You know, I'm going to address the young people in the room right now. Uh, young people in the room, if you have believing parents, their hope and prayer is that this will become a statement that you identify with. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. This is what we parents want for you, our children. We want you to worship God. We want you to be serious Christians. We want you to be people who love the Bible, who recognize what God has done for you, and in response to it, you can't help but worship. So, kids, this is what we're after for you. We're going to give everything we've got to try to make this happen for you. So you have been warned. This is, this is the plan. That's the program. Verses 20 and 21. It's, it's wonderful how even in ancient Israel, the, the women are involved. Then Miriam... The prophetess. So God evidently inspired Miriam to communicate revelatory information. And this does not overturn the hierarchies. It doesn't make it so that Israel is no longer a patriarchal society. They are. But within, within this proper order, there's freedom. 
freedom is not found from an, an abolition of all hierarchies. You, you, you abolish all hierarchies, what you have is chaos. And what will result from chaos is not freedom, it's bondage and fear. With, if you have the hierarchies and you have the, the patriarchy, and, and by patriarchy I don't mean anything coercive or abusive, I simply mean that you have someone like Moses who's like a father figure for the whole nation. And over Moses, you have God who is the father of his people. So you have this fatherly, loving concern that, that creates these, these structures within which there's glorious freedom. And so Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. They are celebrating the, the mighty acts of God. Some scholars suggest, I don't, I don't know, some scholars suggest that the reason that Miriam is called a prophetess is because perhaps she is the one who actually composed the, the content of Exodus 15. That very well could be the case uh, because she is identified as a prophetess. But we, we would affirm that Moses, as the, the author of the Pentateuch, he would have looked this over and he would have decided, yes, this is worthy of inclusion. And, and, and you have this wonderful, if that's, if that's the case, if that's the way it came together, you have this wonderful complementarity where people's gifts complement one another. So Miriam takes a tambourine and, and the women come out dancing. And verse 21, Miriam sang to them. Now these words at the end of verse 21 are almost an exact match of the words that we read in verse 1. The only difference is that whereas you had in verse 1, I will sing, here Miriam issues a command. Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That bracket around the text tells you this is what they're doing. They are singing to the Lord because of the way that he defeated Egypt. So if you want to ask, what's... What's Exodus 15 really about? That's what it's about. They're singing to the Lord because he threw uh, Pharaoh. Did I say this right a second ago? Did I say Exodus into Egypt? I don't, I don't know. Maybe I got crossed up. He threw Pharaoh and his host, horse and rider, he is cast into the sea. Sometimes I've got one thing in my head and something else comes out of my mouth. Um, the next corresponding units are verses 3 and 4. And verses 18 and 19, but before we go away from that first unit, let me, let me offer you a word of, of application. So, you know, in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says to us, in view of God's mercies, as your, as your reasonable service or as your spiritual act of worship, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So what Israel is doing here is like modeling for us how we're to live. Israel has just been delivered, and in view of God's mercy, as a spiritual act of worship, they are singing God's praises. Being a living sacrifice means learning to worship. Learning to worship means understanding God and his salvation. Let me say that again. Being a living sacrifice means learning to worship all the time. And learning to worship all the time means understanding God and his salvation. Because worship is simply our response to God's revelation of himself. If you 
If you behold God, the right response is worship. The wrong response is to rebel against him and decide that you want to be him, which is essentially what you're doing if you reject the knowledge of the living God. So being a living sacrifice means learning to worship. Learning to worship means understanding God and his salvation. The more deeply we understand God and his salvation, the, the more compelled we ought to feel to worship. So if, if in all our studies and if in all our devotions, our, our daily Bible reading, if this is not bringing us to a point where we want to worship, we're doing it wrong. And, and we need to cry out to the Lord to make it right within us, to make it happen. Okay, these next units, verses 3 and 4, and verse, verses 18 and 19. Let's start with verse 3 and verse 18. Verse 3 asserts, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. It's as though Moses is saying he's a conquering hero. He's the champion. That's who Yahweh is. He's the Goliath of Israel. You know, the Philistines, they've got this big guy that nobody, can, nobody wants to take on, that they send out to fight their battles for them. And Moses says, you know, for us, that's who Yahweh is. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And then look at verse 18. This is how, this is how I think these chiastic structures are intended to function. Verse 18 says, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. And what does that communicate to us? It tells us that Yahweh's victory as a man of war establishes his reign as king who will, who will never be unthroned. He will never be removed from the, the seat of power. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. You know, it's interesting, this language of chosen officers. Uh, the word chosen it really does come from this Hebrew root that, that means something like choice young men. So you, you can imagine the, the handsome, strong, uh, attractive, and capable young men of Egypt. That's who Yahweh cast into the sea. And then the next word for officers is, is literally his third ones or something like that. And this seems to arise from the fact that in a chariot, they typically had three people in the chariot. You had the guy with the reins, and then you had the guy with the bow or the spear ready to, to fight, and then you had the third guy who's watching and, and sort of directing traffic and telling the other two what to do, where to aim, where to drive, and so forth. So the choice young men and the officers, Yahweh overwhelmed them. All of these statements are glorifying the Lord. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And, and it's almost as if Moses is saying, if Yahweh can do this to Pharaoh, if Yahweh can do this to Egypt, to, to the choice young men and the third ones of the chariots of Egypt, who can stand against him? And then verse 18, Yahweh will reign forever and ever because the answer to that earlier question is no one, no one is going to be able to overwhelm him. Verse 19 for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them. Um, now that language, Yahweh brought back the waters, that may sound like something else that you read in the Bible. About how uh, the Lord causes this wind 
to blow and the waters recede. And, and I think this is intentional. I think Moses means for us to think of the flood in various ways. And we're going to see other indications of that as we go through this passage. Notice the end of verse 19. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Uh, the Lord is able to protect his people. And the Lord is able to defeat his enemies. So the Lord's victory, verse 3, establishes his reign, verse 18. And here I would speak to those of you who may be visiting with us this morning. Or maybe, maybe you're a member here. And, you know, if you're, if you're visiting, maybe you, you're not somebody who has identified with Christ. You, you, you don't place your full trust and hope in Jesus. You're not yet sure whether, you're not, you, whether or not you want to be a Christian. The other, the other class of people, maybe you're a member here and you've realized, Jesus is not really what I want to live for. And maybe you look at your life and you know Jesus is not really what I live for. So maybe you're a member who's actually not been born again. The question that verses 3 and 4 and verses 18 and 19 are pressing on you is this. Will you be a loyal subject of the reigning king? Or will you be a rebel? who will be subject to his wrath. There is no third option. Those are the only two options. You can either decide, he's the king, he's the boss, I'm going to live for him, I'm going to bow to him, I'm going to trust him, I'm going to hope in him, he's my lord. Or, you are with those who are trying to overthrow him. You are with those who are trying to act like he's not king. And, and, you need to know that's not going to end well for you. That is not going to go, that's going to go no better for you than it went for Pharaoh and all his hosts. Uh, verses 5 through 10, um, this is where uh, Moses, Miriam, Israel, they celebrate uh, the destruction of the army of Egypt. And this is going to match up with verses 13 through 17 where they look to uh, the conquest of Canaan. Let me draw your attention to verses 5 and 10 first. Let me just read these two verses. Verse 5. The floods covered them. And you can hear it there, can't you? The floods. That, that's that's uh, reminiscent of the, uh, the flood of Noah. And it uses this Hebrew term that can be rendered either floods or deeps. It's actually a term that only occurs prior to this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the tahom, over the deep. The, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. And then that word is used next in the account of the flood when the deeps overwhelmed the dry lands. So, so there's, there are creation overtones here with this word tahom. And there are flood of Noah overtones here. The floods covered them just like the floods covered the mountain just like the floods covered all the wicked in the days of Noah the floods co covered the Egyptians they went down into the depths like a stone now look down at verse 10 you blew with your wind the sea covered them same verb from verse 5 covered them and then just as in verse 5 they went down into the depths like a stone in verse 10 they sank like lead 
in the mighty waters. So Moses has bracketed for us verses 5 through 10. And, and it's, it's like he's telling us this is a unit. He's created that inclusio there to tell us verses 5 through 10 are a unit. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Uh, that, those statements correspond to words that will be incorporated into Psalm 118 later, Psalm 118, verses 15 and 16. And I, and I failed to note that earlier in verse 2 when it says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Maybe you recognize that from what Denny read earlier in the service, Isaiah 12, 2. It's also in Psalm 118, verse 14. And I think that both of those later passages, Isaiah and Psalm 118, are referencing this. And so as they celebrate salvation in the future, they're going to, in the future of their history, they're going to look back to their past and align it with what God has done here at the Exodus from Egypt. So uh, this statement in verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. It partakes of the way that all through Exodus, we've read about how God was going to save his people with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And the Lord's mighty right hand has accomplished the victory for him. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty. I mean, can you imagine the majesty of the infinite and almighty living God? There is no majesty that compares. There is no majesty that can even come close to the greatness of the majesty of the one who has no limits, the one who has no deficiencies within himself, the one who is capable of whatever he pleases to accomplish and who is altogether good in the greatness of your majesty. The ESV renders the next line of verse 7. You overthrew your adversaries. Another way to do it, would be to say, you threw down those who rose against you. You threw down those who rose against you. He commissions Moses, go and say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is Yahweh that I should let Israel go? And the Lord says in chapter 6 of Exodus, I am Yahweh. And then as the narrative unfolds, we saw in chapter 14, he says, I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. And he has done exactly as he said he would. Verse 8. Oh, sorry, there's more of verse 7. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This is not the exact same terminology that we find in Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the Torah of Yahweh. And on his Torah, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff which the wind drives away. That phrase, they are like chaps. Not the exact same Hebrew phrase, but it's close. It's clearly synonymous. You send out your fury, Moses says. It consumes them like 
stubble. And then verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. I mean, we, we read about how the Lord, uh, Moses stretched out his hand back in chapter 14. And the Lord, Exodus 14, verse 21, drove the sea back by a strong east wind. And Moses here is poetically reframing this as though the Lord decided, well, I'm just going to do and cause the, the blast of the breath of his nostrils to part the waters. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Uh, that statement at the beginning of Exodus 15 verse 8 is going to be quoted by David in Psalm 18. As David recounts how the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So again, a, future, a, a salvation in Israel's future is going to look back at this and say, what God did for me is like what God did for us at the Red Sea. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods, there's that term again, the tahom, the deeps, stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. It's as though the water suddenly becomes firm by, by this congealing, as though it starts to become a gelatinous or something, and then it steadily gets harder until it's like a wall on the, on the right and the left hand of Israel. And then verse 9, here we see again this Elan of the army of Pharaoh. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And then verse 10. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So all of the, the boasting, all of the daring, all of the, the dashing glory of Pharaoh is gone. Now, I want to skip over to verse 13. So we've, we've, we've seen them look back. They look back on what God did to the army of Pharaoh. And now in verses 13 through 17, they're going to look forward. And, you know, a moment ago I said this is what we do at the Lord's Supper. When we say, as we partake of the, the bread and the cup, um, uh, as, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, we're looking back to the cross, until he comes, we're looking forward to his return. And, and here, in verse 13, they start looking forward to the conquest of the land of promise. And just as verses 5 through 10 had this sort of bracketing, covering of the enemy, and the enemy sinking in the waters like lead or like a stone, look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now drop your eyes down to verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So verse 13 is like verse 17 in that it's talking about the Lord bringing his people into the land. And look at how the land, the land of promise, is described. It's described 
in verse 13 as the Lord's holy abode. And then in verse 17, it's described as his own mountain where he will plant them. Now, this language is Edenic because it was, it was in Eden in the east that the Lord planted a garden. Same terminology. And the reference to the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, is not just a reference to a, a temple or a house that they might build for him. It's a reference to the, the cosmos, the sanctuary in terms of the cosmic temple. So ultimately, this is going to be realized when God has built the new heaven and new earth and the future Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God as the holy of holies in which God will dwell in the midst of his people. When it says there in verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 28 treats the Garden of Eden as a mountain where God uh, first put his people in the beginning. And in a sense, I think this is, this is a little bit anticipating Mount Sinai, which is going to be referred to as the mountain of God because he's somehow uniquely present there. But then it's ultimately pointing forward to a mountain whose name is not known at this point when Moses writes this, but eventually it will be Mount Zion that is chosen as Temple Mount where the Lord will cause his name to dwell as he inhabits the temple that Solomon will one day build. And, and Moses here in Exodus 15, 17, or perhaps Miriam, is prophesying of the way that the Lord will bring the people into the land and plant them on his own mountain where he will dwell with them this sanctuary that your hands have established. Elsewhere, I mean, we sang Psalm 8 this morning. Um, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. The work of your fingers. This is the, the, the creation is what God's hands have established. So I think this ultimately has in view the, 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 the end time uh, cosmic temple in which God will dwell in his people, dwell with his people. Between verses 13 and 17, you have the defeat of the inhabitants of Canaan. So verse 14, the peoples have heard. They've heard the news of what God did to Egypt. They tremble. And, you know, this is exactly what they're going to find. When, when they get to Jericho and the spies go in and start talking to Rahab, and Rahab is going to relate, we heard what your God did to Egypt. And as soon as we heard the news, she's going to say, our hearts melted within us. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants. And now he's going to start naming nations. He's going to name four nations. And I think there are four named because four is one of these uh, ways to communicate completion. You know, there are four corners of the earth. There are four winds of heaven. And now there are going to be these four nations named, even though there are more peoples than that in the land of Canaan. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. And that statement in verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 15, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, uses the same language that, that we saw in Psalm 2 when it says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them 
in his fury. Same, same language here. I'm inclined to think that David, author of Psalm 2, is drawing upon, uh, again, Exodus 15. Verse 16 tells us, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. Strong hand, right hand, greatness of his arm. And then just like the army of Pharaoh back in verse, verse 5, they went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 16, they are still as a stone. And then in the same way that, that the verb used to describe the people of Israel uh, being passed over and then them passing over uh, on dry land is going to be used here at the end of verse 16, till your people, O Lord, pass by. Same verb as the Passover verb and then passing over on dry land till the people pass by whom you have purchased. We could say till the people pass over, till the people whom you have purchased through the redeeming death of the firstborn, to the people whom you have purchased pass over. Which is to say, in the same way that you had the Passover at the liberation of the people from slavery in Egypt, you're going to have a Passover at the conquest of the land. Which is to say, the Exodus is like a preview of what God is going to do at the con conquest. Or you might say, it's a type. This typifies what God does when he goes into action for his people. The type of thing God did at the Exodus is the type of thing he's going to do at the conquest. And I think that's what Moses is communicating when he says that the people are going to pass over the inhabitants of Canaan who are going to be still as a stone, just like Pharaoh is a stone sinking in the, in the deeps. Think with me for a moment on that word or that phrase at the end of verse 16 there, whom you have purchased. And, and you know the redemption of the firstborn of Israel through the death of the Passover lamb is a type, it's a preview of the way that God will redeem his people through the death of his son. The Lord Jesus, and, and Paul is going to describe the Lord Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5-7 as our Passover. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And so, again, I would address those of you who maybe are not believing in the room and say, you, you, should, you should come into one of these houses where the blood of the lamb has been applied to the doorpost and the lintel so that the destroyer doesn't come for you. That, that's what this is about. You, you want to be covered with the blood of Jesus so that the wrath of, G, of God does not consume you. So... They look back at the Red Sea to look forward to the conquest of the land. And the only thing that I haven't talked about is verses 11 and 12. So look with me at the center of this magnificent work of art that was inspired by the Holy Spirit as instructional worship to teach us how to worship, to, to cause us to be transformed and renewed. And they ask this question in verse 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? And we know the answer to that question, don't we? There is no one like him. He is the only one who can be described with all those omnis. Omnipotent. Omnipresent. Omnibenevolent. Omniscience. You know, om omniscient. 
omni-everything is what he is. Except the bad stuff. He's, he's, he's everything. He's, he's the only one who's worthy of worship. And therefore, he's the only one worth living for. He's the only one worthy of your trust. We don't want you to worship anybody but God. We don't want you to worship the Super Bowl champions. We don't want you to worship the greatest quarterback of all time, Andrew. Say it. Go ahead, say it. Tom Brady. We don't want you to worship him. He wouldn't say it. Why wouldn't you say it, brother? I'm just picking on you. Sorry. Non-Patriots fans are squirming. They don't appreciate this. We don't want you to worship anybody but God. He's the only one worthy. That's what this question is forcing us to think about. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? No one. Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Holiness is, is communicating the Lord's devotion to himself, his commitment to who he is within himself, his own character, which separates him from everything else. This character of, of steadfast love, chesed, and truth, emet. And, and somehow, even though he's committed to truth, which means he's committed to righteousness, justice, he's also able to forgive those who commit iniquity. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. I mean, this is a wondrous salvation that's being celebrated, isn't it? Verse 12 summarizes it, again, I think anticipating what's going to happen to Korah and the rebels, but, but speaking here of what happened to Pharaoh and his hosts. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them as the waters closed over them. That's a wonder. That's glorious. That's awesome. There's none like him. Creator. Sovereign conqueror. Heroic champion. Redeeming father. Faithful shepherd. Look back at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. It was, it was loving kindness that prompted the Lord to give them manna from heaven. It was loving kindness that's going to prompt the Lord to not destroy them when they grumble about his goodness to them. It was his steadfast love that prompted him to give them water. And on and on we could go. You have led in your steadfast love. Moses, Moses is talking about the the, the march through the wilderness and then the conquest of Canaan as though it's already happened. That's why all those statements are in the past tense. You have, led, you have led, verse 14, the peoples have heard, pangs have seized, they are dismayed, it's already, it's as good as done, and they've just come through the Red Sea. He's the faithful shepherd, and he's the paradise maker. The sanctuary, O oh, oh Lord, which your hands have established, you will bring them in and plant them like he planted the Garden of Eden on your own mountain. Look, if it's pleasure, a desire for pleasure, or maybe lustful indulgence in pleasure that's keeping you from the Lord, you need to know that he's the one who made the paradise. He's the one who built you with appetites and desires. And he's the only one who's going to be able to satisfy those longings that you feel within you. 
And all these cheap imitations, these fake knockoff pleasures that Satan is using to try to destroy you, they'll never scratch the itch that you feel. So you need to turn to him alone. It's only in worship that you'll be delivered from those things that hold you captive. So the last point of application of this sermon is simple. Worship him. Praise him. And you need to know, too, that as you do this, as you sing the praises of the Lord, you don't need to, you don't need to hold anything back. You don't need to hold anything in reserve. You don't need to have any caveats. You don't need to have any, any sort of pockets of thought where you say, well, maybe I'll do this kind of little bit half-heartedly, but I'm going to reserve this. No, he's worthy of it all. And he will never put you to shame. He'll never disappoint you. He will never wrong you. He's worthy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this psalm of praise, this instructional worship that looks back in order to look forward. And Lord, we would join with Moses and the hosts of Israel and with the faithful across the ages, around the world, in saying, as, as they say in the book of Revelation, when those gathered before your throne in your presence sing the song of Moses, Lord, we would say, who is like you? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And Lord, our prayer is that you would make it real. Lord, we pray that you would cause us so to experience you that, that this response of worship naturally arises from within us. It's a reasonable act of worship. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be consumed with us, that it would be constant and continual, that our lives would be lives that are living sacrifices. Make us Christ-like, Lord, for the glory of your great name.